Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DealMaker Shore. So today we're going to be speaking with a founder that I think is going to teach us a lot, you know, about building and scaling. And then also we're going to be learning about biotech uh, and, you know, also about the exciting things that they're, they're, that they're doing with uh, COVID-19. So I think that without further ado, let me welcome our guest today, Raul Danda. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Alejandro. It's a pleasure to be here. So... Born and raised in New Jersey. So how was life growing up there? You know, it was a fairly good, um, it was a fairly good experience. You know, I, I, um, I grew up with uh, my parents and who had immigrated from India and uh, an older and younger brother. And, you know, we did fairly typical things. Um, but, you know, there was always an entrepreneurial spirit in the family. My, my father and mother um, owned a gas station. And you know, ran that business at the same time that my dad was an engineer at Bell Labs. And so I learned how to work fairly young when I was six years old. And my dad would come back from Bell and pick me up and uh, take me to the gas station, relieve my mom so that she could go back home and watch my brothers. And, and he and I would um, pump gas um, after he got back from being an engineer over at, um, um, at Bell Labs. And then and then spend the weekends there learning how to fix cars and things like that. And so, you know, we we um, we grew up playing sports and doing the competitive stuff that kids do. And at the same time, got a little bit of the bug to um, to go out on our own and start businesses, and which my older brother has done a number of times as well. So it's in the family. That's amazing. And and I guess say obviously here you were exposed. You know, your your parents immigrants. You know, that came from India. Now here they are, like also building their own businesses. So I'm sure that you got, you know, perhaps the entrepreneurial bug, as you were alluding, that your brother also, you know, has it. Uh, I guess, what did you learn, you know, in, in this instance, let's say, from your parents about that entrepreneurial mindset or, or, or way of thinking? You know, I think, I think the piece that really came through was ownership of the venture, you know, that um, everything begins and ends with you. And no matter who you hire, and no matter who's responsible for whatever task, if the task and the responsibility aren't being satisfied, all of it falls on your shoulders. And so it, um, it behooves you not only to be you know, aware of all the things that are going on, but also to be proactive and understanding things so that 
those are avoided. The key isn't to respond. The key is to um, prevent. And so there's a lot of planning and thoughtfulness that goes into it. And, um, and I think that's probably the piece that I took all the way through from the beginning to now. And I'm just wondering, like, what do you think took you so long to, to go at it as an entrepreneur? You know, <clears throat> I think that for me, I wanted to make sure I had the foundation to appropriately understand all the aspects of a business. And so for me, my career was always focused on learning the pieces that would be necessary to be successful at it. Um, and and, and that, that revelation came a little bit later to me when I was out of college and really focused on doing research at the bench. And I, and I, and I had no, I had this intention that I was going to go to medical school, but as I was in a very entrepreneurial lab at Harvard med, you know, people were starting businesses left and right, including my, including my investigator. And, you know, as I saw this going on, I realized, you know, this is something I'd like to do, but I'm not quite sure how. And so a lot of people jump into it, by just jumping into it and saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to start that way. And I think there's, that's the right way for some people. For me, it was, you know, I want to be able to wrap my hands around all the aspects of it. If, you know, I really took that lesson to heart about planning appropriately, it meant understanding all the components of the business. And so I went on a trajectory to understand the science and then understand the markets and then understand the infrastructure and the operations until I got to a point where I'd seen it put into place that I had the confidence that, you know, I could do it as well or better than others I'd seen do it. That was the time for me to step along. And then it also required, you know, the opportunity to come my way, which isn't always there, but I, I was, I was going to be prepared for it when it came. And when it did come, um, I, I was very happy to make the leap. And it's amazing, you know, like when you take a look at also as your, at your trajectory, I mean, obviously you, after Harvard, you know, and being on the on the research, you know, uh, labs there. I mean, you you went at it, you know, by by working, you know, really in a in a biotech company, and as you were saying, like really learning the the ins and outs. But but after this, you know, obviously there is an event that happened in the family, and that got you to move to New Jersey. So so what happened there? Yeah, so you know, <clears throat> we had we had lost um, my 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 father, and so um, my brothers and I were all going through fairly, you know intense moments in our lives, but my mother was going through an even tougher time. And so um, we all conferred and, you know, decided that I would leave Boston where I was living at the time, go back to New Jersey for a couple months and help my mother get through the process. But the, uh, the time that I spent there, you know, I'm not, I'm not particularly good at being idle. And so I um, took uh, humanities training that I had gained at a college and scientific training that I had gained um, through vocation. And uh, I wrote a book called Guiding Icarus, Merging Bioethics and Corporate Interests, which focused on how ethics and policy can come together in a way to make um, responsible organizations more successful. And um, it was a way for me to take a lot of ideas that were brewing around entrepreneurship as much as they were around the responsible delivery of biotechnology and put that into something that I thought would be meaningful. And, and what was nice about it, it really was the first book geared towards business to capture bioethics and ethical issues as they relate to, um, to biotechnology. And, you know, this is amazing because I find that building and scaling companies, you know, it's really all about as well blending storytelling with process and really mastering both. And, you know, it seems that 
you were doing that by working at these other companies, and now you were now getting this exposure to storytelling by writing a book. So really, really cool. And then obviously you went back, you know, at it. You worked at a small biotech, you know, developing diagnostics, and then you decide to do your MBA. Why? Why did you think it was the right time to do the MBA? Yeah. So you know, at that point. I felt like I had been appropriately exposed to enough systems and responsibilities that I had a little bit of a lay of the land. But what I what I didn't feel I, I fully had was you know the depth and structure to move as fast as I wanted to um, within my career and within biotech. And and I felt that you know with the right program, I could really get those legs underneath me and and and, and accelerate the path. And, and really make better decisions. I think, you know, the more information you have, the better decision-making you, you'll, you'll also have. And so um, thinking about the various avenues to go through and, and, you know, the mentors I had had until then, most of them had gone and gotten their MBA or some higher degree. And to be very focused on the business side, I thought this was the appropriate time because I had foundation, but not all of the tools. And you never have all the tools, but I wanted to get more of them faster. And so I uh, went to MIT and the, uh, the Sloan Management Program and um, had a, a remarkable experience there that, you know, I think I credit a lot of my progress to, to what I learned there. And um, it was a great experience with great, um, a great cohort of students, many of whom have been, you know, incredibly successful entrepreneurs. And so it was a very fertile ground for ideas and for uh, building an infrastructure for my future. Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting here because... Just like as we were discussing where you were working, when you were working at the Harvard the lab, you know, like you were seeing all these people starting their own businesses, obviously in the MBA, even more, you know, companies are started. And here you are still resisting. And it took you 12 <laughs> more years until you were, you know, going at it, you know, really as an entrepreneur. But I guess, you know, those 12 years after the MBA, you know, you really got to understand how you can scale the revenues of a company and then also what it looks like from being the 10th employee to taking the company public. So tell us what you learned during those 12 years. Yeah, so, you know, there's there's a couple of things, you know, going from large organizations to small organizations. And, and um, you know, within, within my, so right out of my MBA, I went to a, to a Fortune 100 company and um, was responsible for um, marketing and product management for, uh, you know, products that were, uh, by the time I left, over $100 million in revenue, pretty good growth. And, um, and there's a lot to be gained, you know, from, from being in a larger company, many, many think that, oh, you're restricted and, and it's, you know, bureaucratic and you know, there's too much process. And, you know, what I learned there was that, you know, those things are true, but that's only true if you look at it that way. If you look at it as a means of gaining experience of seeing how things work when they go right there's a lot to be gained from it. And so, you know, these massive organizations that people think are cumbersome were at one time one or two people and eventually got to be 30,000 people and billions of dollars. And so to get there, they had to do things right. And so at, that, at the larger company I was in, I learned, um, I learned a lot about the value of process and a lot about the value of, you know, what does, you know, what do processes contribute to building a company. And, and you know, the thing that, that I took away that I, that I hold on to to this day is that in the absence of perfect data and information, which is always absent, 
process helps you get to a better answer faster than if you just try to wing it with what you have. And so it also empowers people to make decisions that, um, that they should be making in their role if they, if they haven't had the experiences that others have, but you still need them to be empowered to drive forward. The, the other thing I learned, though, is that entrepreneurism works anywhere. And so even in a very large organization, you know, I had responsibility for products that had existed for, you know, tens of years. Um, and those decades long products had plenty of growth if they could be managed right. But those were, you know, fairly mature opportunities. At the same time, very, very large organizations have the need to be nimble in sections and areas. And, and if appropriately directed, will pursue entrepreneurial activities. And so one of the things that I, that I also learned there was that if you have all of the resources of a Fortune 100 company, and, and the mandate to go do something interesting. And I was given a project to come up with a completely new product for a completely new market. Um, then you have the opportunity to learn a lot about your, about your ability to do that with a little bit more safety. And so, you know, we, and it wasn't me alone, you know, I, I had a mentor there. I had uh, other people involved in the team. And we all got together and basically built our own little business with the safety of the large company around us uh, within that large company. And, um, and you learn a lot about making trade-offs. You learn a lot about um, how, to, how to fit process into a nimble, pro into nimble system if you have to. And, um, and what it taught me about myself is that I really loved that project more than I loved anything else I was working on. And that if, I, if I'm going to keep on the path that is of interest to me and that keeps me happy in the workplace, then, um, then I needed to be more of an entrepreneur than I, than, than a, uh, than, than being in that large company, despite all the learnings. And so at about that time of that revelation, um, I had heard about an opportunity at another company that was in the diagnostic space, trying to get off the ground with a very small group. And it just got seed funded and, um, was recruiting a CEO that they had said they were about to hire. And, and he gave me a call through contacts we had, and we sat down and had breakfast. And, you know, what, what was ahead of them was taking a brand new technology all the way through to um, commercial and product that began, you know, in the lab. It had just been transferred into this company. And so everything that had to happen was taking an idea and making it real. And so that challenge was just so incredibly exciting. And the opportunity to have a piece of each part of the development of that company was, you know, the most fertile learning ground that I could probably get myself into without doing it all myself. And, um, and I jumped on board and this company, uh, it's called T2 Biosystems, it's a public company today. We, you know, we, I came on board as a 10th employee and, um, you know, we, over, over the 10, and a half years, roughly, that I was there, we took that idea, turned it into a product, launched that product, took it public, and then you know I left right before gearing up for the next product launch. And in that process, um, the thing that I think came through there are a couple things that I learned from being there. You know, one is is the value of culture, and that the culture is going to drive a lot of the behavior, and so 
if you're in a small company that's trying to build something great, is to be incredibly sensitive to how you do it because the people who are motivated to do it are going to be driven by you know, how they feel being a part of that mission. The other things that really came across while I were there was, you know, was how little information you're going to have and how many decisions you're going to have to make um, and how quickly you need to make those decisions. So one thing that I do now um, is when I have meetings today, I focus them on decisions. I don't focus them on updates. I don't focus them on status. I focus them on what are the things that we have to do to move the ball forward now and watching how people can push back and forth with arguments, concepts, ideas, programs, projects. Those are the things that hold back progress within the organization. And so one of, one of the key, key, and I think probably one of the most critical aspects I got out of that was if you can make a decision, make the decision and make it as soon as possible because you're unlikely to come to a different conclusion if you wait. And if you wait, you may be too late to be able to make that, to execute on that. Or if you do have to reverse it, which is going to happen too, it's going to be a little bit later in that process as well. Um, so, you know, those were, those were kind of the high level um, aspects of it. Then there were, you know, very practical decisions around how it is that you go through these changes and this evolution within a company, starting with, say, science, moving into technology, moving into product, and how incredibly painful the transitions are between those moments for an organization where the skill sets that got the science to be ready to transition into you know, more of a robust, routine, technological um, platform. Um, those people aren't necessarily the right people for the technology part of it, who are not necessarily the right people for the product and commercialization part of it. And so layering your organization in a way that allows you to keep um, preserve the talent that you have to focus on the projects that are value add so that you separate certain tasks and separate certain programs so that the people who are good at science stay on that in the right way. And the people who can transition into the technology side of it and the more the development side of it always have projects on their um on their plate and then the same with the commercial side otherwise you're turning people over um inefficiently and and what you really want to do is think about every hire with a long-term view so that you see where they play out when the company will be successful because the only option you have is success so you should focus on that and think about that and ensure that what you're building is something that is sustainable when you are successful but also can be responsive and nimble when you have challenges that come in before. Um, so, you know, th those were the things. And then, you know, there's the, there's the more um, tactical aspects of, you know, what does it mean to build a team when you're all of a sudden going to commercialize a product from scratch? And, and how hard is it to take a new technology into a fairly um, mature market um, with consolidated, um, consolidated competitors as a small new entrant? And there's a lot of challenges there, a lot of research there. And there's a lot that you have to do to really focus on how you differentiate. Um, and then, you know, the dream for everybody is, is how do you get to the exit? And when you get to the IPO, how do you plan that appropriately? How do you get ahead of that? Um, and, you know, we were at a moment where a lot of groups were going IPO and there was a wave of them. And it was absolutely necessary for us to do it at that time. Um, but at the same time, you know, there were, it was done very quickly. And so, you know, we learned all of us how to manage that and setting expectations and how your audience shifts 
when you're a public company from just from not just being customers, but also from, you know, analysts, institutional investors. And so your story gets bigger as you evolve your company and it has to reach more people. And every every day there's a larger audience for how it is you get your message across. So you have to stay on top of that as well. Of course. Those are a lot of the lessons that I learned in the process. And those are great and very profound. So thank you for sharing them, Raul. So I I guess, you know, like what I want what I want to ask you now is obviously in 2018 you receive a phone call that changes everything. What happened there? Yeah, that, that was that was you know absolutely a great moment in my my life. So, so you know when I'm when I was at that when I was at T two Biosystems, I was um, very very much enmeshed in the commercial and clinical side of our products. And so, um, an interesting thing happened along the way where I had um, a number of people sending me this paper about you know this technique called Sherlock. And I just didn't read it because it was in science, which is, you know, a very, an incredible journal, but not the one that we generally use when we're focused on commercial aspects because it's very, you know, it's very scientifically oriented as opposed to clinical. And, um, and finally, enough people sent me this paper that I, that I read it. And when I read the paper, I thought, this is incredible. These new engineering biology tools, CRISPR and synthetic biology, are going to change the way that healthcare is delivered and diagnostics, which was my area of expertise, is going to be the catalyst for that. And then I put it away, forgot about it, and thought just before that, some lucky person's gonna run this company. And about two months later, I got a phone call from David Walt, founder of Illumina, Quanterix, number of companies. And I had met him a few months earlier than that, just in a networking capacity um, for he and, and Feng Zhang, whose lab had published that paper and, you know, is a pioneer of CRISPR. And David called and said, you know, Feng and I were talking with uh, Jim Collins and um, we'd like to uh, we'd like to talk to you about an opportunity. And I knew in the moment exactly what they were talking about. And, um, you know, this 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 advanced technique, this Sherlock technique for molecular diagnostics that was developed, you know, with Jim Collins and Feng Zhang and, and, and together um, has all of that potential. And, and David said to me, you know, I really want you to sit down with Jim Collins. And, uh, and when I sat down with Jim, you know, he explained to me this vision that they had when they had developed the Sherlock technique and this other technology inspector, a synthetic biology technique for doing home-based DNA and RNA testing. and it was the right vision, the right technology, and the right moment, and um, and I couldn't start fast enough. And I, you know, I as soon as they we went through a little bit of planning and discussion, and they made the offer to me and, and gave me the opportunity to be a founder of the company, uh, I jumped and um, and have never looked back and have never been happier. That's amazing. So obviously here nine co-founders. So how do you manage yeah. so many founders? <clears throat> Yeah, you know, the, the founders, they span both technology and clinical um, and business. And so in this capacity, everyone has something to add at different aspects and development moments for the company. And so, you know, the key for us is to pull in these, these just incredible experts across all these industries at the right time. And so what's nice is that if we go back to that model of how one goes from science all the way through to commercial and the phases of company, um, there are different people who have different values um, at different times. And, you know, 
one of the ways that also works for me is uh, two of the founders, Jim Collins and David Walter, on the board of directors, and so um, and so they're 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 highly engaged. So they they know a lot about what's going on, and their advice um, comes in frequently. Thankfully, I actually consult them on a very regular basis. So the key to me for founders is they have very, you know they have areas of great expertise and right you know as you're thinking about engaging those expertise you know well before you engage them is the time to engage the um engage the founders in those areas and so we have um we have basically staggered a lot of the activity around the stage of development of the company so then i guess for the folks that are listening you know what what ended up being the business model of sherlock yeah so <clears throat> That's a great question. So Sherlock is a platform company with multiple platforms for molecular diagnostics. And the business model is one where you know, we are, we, you know, a lot of the, the other lessons I've learned very specific to the diagnostic space is that there are a couple of areas of intense risk and that those ought to be managed in an early stage company. In particular, um, developing instrumentation takes a very long time and a lot of capital. The other is that building sales channels to challenge existing brands is also complicated in you know areas where there's a lot of enmeshed, um, a lot of enmeshed uh, uh, players. And so, the things that we're doing differently, number one is that we're working with multiple platforms, and so that we're not single threaded, and uh, how it is we address the problems of molecular diagnostics. So we can deploy a synthetic biology platform at home if we need to, or we can deploy a CRISPR technology platform in the pharmacy if. We and uh, that gives us a lot of versatility and it doesn't lock us into any specific markets. And so the way that we've done this is that we are using one of those platforms to be heavily reliant on partnerships so that it can get to market faster. And that's what we do with our Sherlock CRISPR platform. The other is a brand new way of doing diagnostics. And so we hold on to that more closely. And that will be a, a more of a business to business direct relationship with retail and other kinds of facing channels like that other you know other retail facing and similar channels um, for those and so there is a hybrid of direct development and out licensing that is dependent on application and platform and and for the company how much capital have you guys raised so we raised a little bit over 50 million dollars 32 of it was in equity led by north pond ventures and baidu and um, 20 of it was non-dilutive through a couple of uh, philanthropic, including Open Philanthropy, Gates Foundation, and government, uh, including Defense Threat Reduction Agency. And, and obviously, you know, like it happens in companies where there's that moment where you need to adjust uh, to the market. And I know that in this case for you guys, there was something super interesting in the journey, and that was pivoting to developing a COVID-19 test. Tell us about this. Yeah, so... In, uh, you know, we as a company, we're planning to launch products sometime you know, at the end of 2022, beginning of 2023, just because of all of the infrastructure you have to build, the regulatory structure, the commercial channels, the manufacturing, the partnerships, all of those things that we were relying on to get these products out. And then around November, December timeframe, we started to hear about the coronavirus that was being um, spread and potentially a pandemic through, you know, Wuhan and China. And we had teammates who have family there. We have close connections through other avenues in China. And so we pretty early on had it on our radar screen. But, you know, we, with our model and our expectation, thought, you know, we as an organization weren't necessarily going to be ready 
to go and launch any kind of test uh, in the short term. And um, as the months progressed, we, we did keep our finger on that pulse. And eventually, in February, realized that this is going to be a real problem in a pandemic, and we need to make a decision about whether we are really going to address it or we're going to stay in the sidelines. And the company's mission is very clear, you know, to improve global health by delivering tests where they are needed. And so what, what I had decided in mid-February was that we need to develop a coronavirus test. And, um, and so I called my board of directors, and I, obviously I couldn't get them all at once, but it was all in the 24-hour span that I spoke to each of them. And I said, I think that we need to at least allocate resources to dedicate them to develop a coronavirus test. And every one of them was on board. And I heard then, you know, I think that it was best summarized by David Walt, who said, this is becoming a real problem. We have to address it. It's our mission. We'll figure out whether it's economically helpful for the company. But for now, it's our responsibility. And that was exactly how I felt. That was exactly the sale that I was making to the board of directors. And I had zero resistance. So the next thing I had to do was go to the company and tell everybody in the company that if you're working on the platform that is most advanced, our Sherlock CRISPR platform, I need you to focus very specifically on coronavirus here on out. And that's it. So I spoke to our chief technology officer, Will Blake, and I said, you know, I want to repurpose the team this way. And he, he, you know, he was fully in line with that. And so I walked out into the middle of the bullpen where almost all the staff sits and said, I just need everyone's attention. And everyone turns their chairs and faces me. And I said, I need everybody working on Sherlock to now build a plan to get a coronavirus test in place. And we're going to figure out how we're going to get this out. And I didn't know what to expect. Um, I really didn't. But the response was a unanimous nod. And then everyone turned around and you could just see almost like choreographed, the chairs just turned back to the, their screens. And they all started working on a plan. And planning to develop this assay. But in the back of my mind, I was plagued by this other problem, which is, well, the technology is a piece of it, but to actually scale and commercialize the technology is completely different because you have to build a very different organization than the one we had. And so the R&D team came up with their plan, but the business, which didn't consist of really anybody on the business side, but me and one or two people, had to come up with its plan, both to develop an operation that could create an infrastructure to get regulatory approval, the business partners that we, we need to identify business partners that could represent the scale that we needed to develop a product and release a product. And we had to do this all fast enough to make a difference. <clears throat> and so, and, and at the same time, this was all happening two years faster then I was planning to scale the organization to do it. And so I had now just gotten commitment from my R&D team to make this pivot. But I owed them the, the, um, the solution to close the gap on the business side. And so 
we had a lot of variables that we had no idea how to answer, but every confidence that if we planned right, we could. And so what we did is we solicited as many partnerships that we thought could drive to this solution and actually close a partnership that we thought would be the right solution to this, but turned out that, you know, that group had already really gone forward with their own solution to COVID-19. And that given resource constraints for all of us, you only had you only had room to do one. So as we were searching for the right partner, and we had fairly advanced discussions with many of them, another shift happened, which was in the middle of March, a, um, the FDA had released its guidance on what the regulatory infrastructure would be to, um, to allow for a product to be authorized. And um, my regulatory consultant, who was incredibly proactive, sent me an email saying, hey, I think we can do this ourselves now if you can find someone who can manufacture and has you know, the right quality system. And so the next thing I did is I went back to that same bullpen, called everybody in and said, I need another shift. I think we can build this and do it ourselves. Trust me that the team on the business side is going to find the manufacturer. But now what I need is not just people working on the CRISPR platform to work on this. I need everybody in the company to work on this. However, I also need people who are not R&D to go home because we were in the middle of a pandemic and we had to shelter in place if you were non-essential. So we have the company, the 20 people turned into 10. And the 10 people who are in the company had to basically get through all the clinical analysis necessary to get FDA approval. And then some of those people at home had to work to go and find the right partner to scale the manufacturing. And what happened, which was just a remarkable thing, is the most amazing team I've ever worked with had everything fall into place, pushed everything forward, and by early May had gotten EUA approval for our product, which we launched about a week ago, week and a half ago, and is now available for sale. And what we, in a very short period of time, did close the gap between where we were then and where we anticipated to be in two years by creating a network of the supporting structures we needed, both with consultants and partners that were built on the strong work they were all doing. And this is a team that faced adversity. This is a team that had challenges pop up, data that wasn't interpretable, data that wasn't, uh, data that wasn't going the way it should have. And with every challenge they faced, they never faltered. They never gave into adversity. And the only question they ever asked was, how do I get this done instead of telling me this is why we can't do it? And I, and, I, and I think that what this team did was historic because at the end of the day, when we were all done with this, not only did we develop a COVID-19 test, but we also took through the FDA the first authorized use of a CRISPR product in history. So it was a historic moment for the company, but also an historic moment for biotech overall. That's amazing. That's amazing. And one of the... Obviously, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you here is one that I typically ask the guests that come on the show. If you had the opportunity to go back in time, Raul, and ask yourself or, or give yourself that younger Raul one piece of business advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, knowing what you know now? The one piece of advice I would, I would give myself is that build a team and a culture that you know you can empower and trust to do the right thing, whether it comes to how they treat their team or whether how it is they address challenges that they're facing. I think that 
what makes great companies are the people and great people will make any technology succeed. And if ever that lesson were proved, it was this example. Wow. That's very, very profound. And I guess for the folks that are listening, Raul, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, you know, I think there is a, uh, you can reach me by email if you like. It's my first initial last name, R-D-H-A-N-D-A at Sherlock.bio, um, LinkedIn, Twitter, and uh, um, through the company website, Sherlock.bio. Amazing, Raul. Well, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you so much, Alejandro. It's a real pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.